tuned in tonight to read the scripture for you today. It's from Mark 5. Mark 5, 1 through 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When Jesus saw from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of that area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. When they came, Jesus, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but he said, Go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the people of Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Thank you, Meredith. We're in this study called Beyond the Ordinary. We've been talking about the miracles of Jesus. Today we go to a really hard one, one we have to look at uh, because of, of the topic of it. And uh, because of the way I don't think we're in reality about our world. Maybe that's a place to begin. I mean, does evil scare you? I mean, when you see the kinds of things that happen, like in the post-Super Bowl parade, or happen in atrocities around the world, does, does that shock you? I mean, is it, does it grab your attention? Um, as I was thinking about this um, uh, miracle of Jesus, it reminded me of that scene, if you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings, you remember in the second of the trilogy called The Two Towers, uh, Gandalf and the others have to recruit an army to fight against evil. And to do that, Gandalf goes to a place called Edoras in a country called Rohan to recruit the king. His name is Theoden. But when he arrives in Rohan, uh, in, in Edoras, he sees this king who has been, like, bewitched, you could say, by a man named Grima Wormtongue, just like the name sounds, right? He's been drawn into evil. And this beautiful king, this majestic man, you can look how he's just totally destroyed, unable to act or move to lead his own kingdom. And of course, Gandalf will have none of that. And in short order, with just a few words, the enchantment. 
encampment is driven off of Thayden. And it's a beautiful transformation into this glorious king. And now he takes up the battle with all the others against evil. Now the problem with that is that's fiction. And people end up reading the Gospel of Mark and saying, well, that's probably fiction too. I mean, stuff like this doesn't happen in our world. I mean, maybe there was a day when people were superstitious, not like we are today, before this scientific era in which we're living that they believed in, like sin and, and demons and, and evil like that. But come on, we're, we're beyond that. These are irrational beliefs, and, and we just don't hold to these things anymore. But if we believe that, we find ourselves in an, an immense problem. And the problem is this. We're surrounded by, by shootings and suicides and overdoses and atrocities. And evil is always at hand, and at the same time, it, it's beyond our control. We cannot shut this stuff down. So how should we view evil? How should we view the devil? Well, C.S. Lewis explained it like this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So he said, you can be on either side of this divide. You can be over here and you're like, no, 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 that stuff just isn't even real. Or you can be on the other side, it's like you see a demon, a devil in every bush, right, in the world. And he says, you, you don't understand, neither of these are right. And so today, as we're invited by Jesus into the truth of what he's done, because, by the way, Jesus has just gotten off the boat. Dave last week preached on how Jesus calmed the storm. He is going to show us how he is Lord over all things, and he's come to resolve this problem with evil in our world. Would you pray together with me? Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity of worship. And Lord, I pray that you would lead us into your truth through your word and being able to see Jesus. That this would, your truth, your word would connect the dots, Lord, because we, we do not understand this. It is dumbfounding for us and overwhelming for us. So we pray that you would lead us into your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think if you could say we're one of those cultures, we'd be on that side where C.S. Lewis says, oh, there are a group of people who just disbelieve about this. But I mentioned this leaves us with an immense problem. And the problem is this. If we don't know what we're battling against, we don't know how to, how to address it. We don't know how to deal with it. We don't have the tools with which to face this. A little over 20 years ago, a, a professor from New York State wrote, wrote a book that had this interesting title, The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And it's actually in the introduction to that book that he states very clearly the first sentence of his introduction. He says this, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources for coping with it. In other words, come on, we see this stuff in the news. We hear about things going on all around the world. We are so aware of this. 
And at the same time, we cannot figure this out intellectually, and we don't have the tools and resources to address it and to solve it. And by the way, this, this cuts through our world. Every story that is of significance, including the one I mentioned, Lord of the Rings, you will find in it is this collision or intersection between light and darkness, good and evil. And this is the world in which we live. This is, we're in the middle of this. And so, by the way, so though we can see evil very well, we don't know what to do about it. We've denied the deeper, transcendent nature of evil. And this guy says, that's why we, we don't talk about Satan. We don't talk about demons. And by the way, you can tell a lot about a culture by looking at what they refuse to talk about. We're awash in it, though. And this has left us lost and stuck and afraid. And by the way, we're told, well, this is all because of social problems, social systems. And that we need to have better education and maybe better medication. And by the way, those things are not bad, but they cannot get us there. We have trusted in human solutions and human explanations, and these just don't go deep enough. By the way, we talk about the social systems, but where do you think those things came from? You think a bunch of people got into a room and decided they were going to do this? How do you think societies ended up living in these ways? What do you think is driving the evil that is afoot in our world? You see, our explanations don't explain this. And they cannot provide the healing and hope that we need. And in the process, evil only seems to grow. Now, I like what the New Testament scholar, his name is Tom Wright, said. He said, look, study the New Testament... And you will find this. There is such a thing as a dark force that seems to take over people, movements, and sometimes whole countries. A force that can make people do things they would never normally do. And by the way, that's part of the explanation of the atrocities that dominated the last century of humankind. The most educated people on earth ended up doing the worst things that we could even imagine. How did this happen? And so what scripture gives us is a far more nuanced explanation and understanding of evil. And at the same time in Jesus, an answer to the overwhelming evil that we see in our world. And that's what I want to look at with you today. How Jesus offers us hope in the face of evil. I want to look at the power of evil, the defeat of evil, and again, what our hope is. Now, by the way, if you have your Bible there, which I hope you do, you know that's okay, I have device. The Gospel of Mark, which our reading was from, that Meredith read for us, there is a constant story of this collision that happens all through this Gospel. And from the onset of the Gospel, we are told that this evil force in the world sees Jesus coming. A man with an unclean spirit, for example, in chapter 1, approached Jesus and cried out like this. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now we read that and that doesn't sound strange except for this. At this point in the life of Jesus, even his disciples have not figured out who he is. They don't know his identity. 
identity. They don't know that he's the Messiah and the Son of God. And yet here is the presence of evil who knows exactly who Jesus is and just what Jesus has come to do. He has come to change the story of our world. And evil knows this. Now before we get started, I need to try and explain a little bit about how spiritual power works. And it works like this. Just like you can see a person overcome by, say, guilt in their life or shame in their life in such a way that it begins to shape them more and more and to control their lives, a person can be influenced by evil in such a way that that person then manifests that evil. Here's what happened to this man. So as Jesus got out of the boat, and a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus has just gotten off the boat after calming the storm in the night that the disciples faced. And now he meets another storm. And that storm is in this man. And by the way, these storms are frightening because, again, we don't have a solution for them. They're overwhelming to us, right? Then because Satan and the demons have no body, they are looking for willing subjects who will bring their kingdom into living flesh to become servants, you might say. So notice the power of evil in this scene. It sort of looks like a cross between The Walking Dead. My friend Susan is here. She loved, she watched all the walk, Walking Dead stuff, you know. Maybe you guys have done. So it looks like The Walking Dead and the incredible, incredible Hulk all come together, right? Because nobody can control this guy. Yet he's living in a graveyard. He's among the tombs. Okay? Now you read this. I read this to you and you're like, oh, I'm never going to encounter somebody like this. Right? This, I'm not going to face anything like this. So how can this scripture possibly help me? Well, I think there are in two ways that it can. First, I think it can give us a confidence in the power of Jesus to defeat evil at its worst and evil in us. And second, I think it can teach us, well, how does evil work? How does it happen to a guy like this? Why would this man come to be like this? You see, this man's story tells us not only about himself, but the way that evil works in each of us. Now, I know you may be thinking, hey, aren't there just some good people and bad people, evil people and people in the light? And if we just separate out those evil people, we'll be okay. But the reality is this. The line between good and evil is not between some good people and bad people. But it runs through every single human heart, including your own. And so you yourself live in the midst of this struggle every day. See, it'd be easy if we could just sort a few people out. But we can't do that because it's in each of us. And that means this applies to you and it also applies to me. Now, I want to look at two things here as we look at evil. First, the progress of evil. The progress of it. You notice that at this point, nobody can even bind this guy. But it says before they could. And what you begin to realize is, well, this guy wasn't born in the tombs. He didn't grow up in the community of the tombs. There was this progression that led him to this place where he is. Evil works progressively. It begins super small. 
You begin by taking one small step, maybe agreeing to a lie, or doing something that you know is wrong. And then it seems benign at first. It seems harmless. It seems like such a small thing. You take one step. Again, you do something you know is wrong. Maybe you feel like it's completely unimportant, but soon, like, one step leads to another step, and another, and now you've gone farther and farther down that road so far that you're not sure how you can find your way out. And at the beginning, you've used all kinds of mental energy to justify what you did, but soon, you're beyond that. And slowly, you become more deeply entwined in evil. So how does this happen? Well, I'm told in law enforcement, corruption begins with like, or with political leaders, and may begin with a small gift, or tickets to a game, or a free meal at a restaurant, or, or a flight in someone's jet. You see, evil doesn't show its hand fully to you. It's slow. It's subtle. And again, at the time, it doesn't seem like a big matter at all. It's, you just start a really casual text message exchange. Or you message that person on Facebook. Or you go into incognito mode as you're surfing on the internet. Or you fudge an expense road. This is all small ways. And the book of Proverbs has it right. It says this, there's a way that appears to be right. But in the end, it leads to death. And so here's this pull, this very subtle pull, because there's the kingdom of God, of this alternate kingdom. And it begins slowly, but then it progresses. By the way, every day you will face that pull from that alternate kingdom to take the first step. I read this really funny, fun story a couple of weeks ago. This woman in Texas, I don't know if she was driving or going down the side of the road. She looked up at her two kittens. And she loves animals. So she's like, she gathers up these two kittens. She takes them home. She's going to take care of them. She's going to rescue them. But before long, they're attacking her. They're tearing up the house. And what she realized, then she takes them over to the vet. And the vet is like, oh, these happen to be bobcat kittens. Wild bobcats. Okay? And you're like, oh, yeah. I thought I could take this thing and it, it would be okay. And I could take this and I would be fine. And you see, that's what you've told yourself. You say, oh, I can do this. I can handle this. This isn't going to affect me. Or I can go into that and, and it's not going to have any residual effect on me. We, we believe that about our lives. I don't know if you know this, but one time, it's on the night Jesus was betrayed and, and the disciples were all filled with pride about following Jesus, Peter among them. And Jesus looked at Peter and he's like, like you know, Satan could sift you like wheat. He can sift you like wheat. And so we think we're strong, right? And I can do that little thing. And I'm going to be okay. And by the way, this started progressively for this guy. We think that we're stronger than the power of evil, but we are not. And here's what this man became. It says, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day... Among the tombs, like he didn't even sleep. This guy, and in the hills, we he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is an amazing description, right? Here's a guy with superhuman power, but he's descended into a kind of living death. And this is the power of evil, and it will offer you things. 
By the way, Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller said, it's sort of like the Faustian bargain. Faust is a, myth, a, a, a person from German mythology who desired full knowledge and as much pleasure he could get. So he went to the devil and he decided he would do a trade with the devil. He would give the devil his soul if he could have what he wanted. And by the way, the results seem amazing. He has incredible knowledge and all this pleasure. But what he doesn't realize is what it has cost him. He gets power, but he loses his very self. And this is what evil does. It promises those things that you want, but in so doing, draws you in. Here's Becky Cooper explaining it. She's a writer. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the, the thing we make Lord of our life. Right? So Faust, once he has sold his soul, he can't get it back. You see, the promises of power, whatever those promises are, you hear them to you. They, in the end, it will have you. You want approval and acceptance, but then you become slaves of the very people you want to approve of you. And in the process, we lose our lives. And we can go so far down that road that we represent and start to live out the very evil that we learn in the process. You know, as I look at that, I'm like, oh man, what are you bargaining for? What are you saying to yourself? Oh, if I can only have that, and I would do almost anything to get this. You see, that's the way that we, we're drawn in. And here's the second thing, that evil becomes destructive. By the time Jesus arrives, this man is living in self-hatred. He's cutting himself because of the pain of it all. We see the contrast with this immense power, the chains he can't break, and, and no one can subdue him. But he can't do anything to help himself. I mean, how more contradictory could it be? And this is where we end up. We can gain the whole world, Jesus said, and lose our souls in the process. You see, evil makes those promises to give you life, and instead, down the road, there's death. He hardly even has a life anymore. And by the way, we cannot get ourselves free. But Jesus can. This is what we're told. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God. In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now you notice Jesus doesn't send this guy away. He doesn't ignore him. He doesn't walk past him. Who would want to deal with this, right? We would want to walk past him. But instead he speaks with the man and the impure spirit. The first thing to notice about this man's black, um, um, liberation, you could say, is the contradiction in him. The first thing is he, he runs up to Jesus. And we're even told that he, he bows before him. That's the posture of worship, right? So here's this guy who runs up to Jesus. He bows before him as if in worship. And, and I think this is, this is true. And at the same time, you'll notice how afraid he is. Don't torture me. Don't torture me. And I think this is the reality of what's, what many of us who find liberation in Jesus discover. In other words, we're attracted to Jesus. We know there's hope in Jesus, but we're like, oh, what's going to happen?
happen to me if I actually come to him? What, what's going to happen if I, I actually give my life to him, if I actually follow him? You may be drawn to him like that, but in the, at the same time, there's this huge reluctance. Jesus is going to change my life. What, is, what will happen to me if I actually, he can ruin my life. And so here's this tension that you feel in this man that he, he worships Jesus and runs to him. But at the same time, he's like, no, no, no. I don't want to be told you. I remember reading the conversion story of Anne Lamont. She's a famous writer now. You see, see a picture of her. Um, and she was, per, Jesus was pursuing her. But as Jesus was pursuing, she knew, you know, Jesus, you know, she met Jesus. She was so drawn to him. And at the same time, she's like, no, 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 no. I'm not going over there. I'm not going to trust him. This is what she said. She believed he would ruin her life. I was appalled. I thought about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian. And it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and I said out loud, I would rather die. Now, of course, she ends up coming to faith in Jesus. But we know this feeling of reluctance, don't we? We know this, this you know, and by the way, the man calls it torture. Jesus is not going to do that. He wants to liberate him. And maybe you have had this feeling too. What's going to happen to me if I actually go all in with Jesus? For him to be your Lord. You see, driving out the darkness requires us to embrace Jesus. And I don't know whether you believe this or not, but it's true. There is no middle ground. You're either in the kingdom of light or you're not. And that's the reality. Is So coming to Jesus, knowing you can trust Jesus, he does not intend to torment you. His desire is to ransom us and our souls that can be sold to this evil. He desires to set you free. And notice how he does this. It says, just says, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Isn't that beautiful? It's almost like how Jesus called the seas. Like, peace, be still. And it was all calm. He just does this with his word. Like the word God spoke at creation to, to order everything. And by the way, you don't know how surprising this is because in history, you look it up on the internet or however you want to look it up, there are many different exorcisms, you could call, recorded in history. But in every case, they're different than this. Do you know how? That person always invokes a higher power. They'll say, in the name of God Almighty, Jesus doesn't do that. You want to know why? He is that higher power. He just says, come out. And, the, and that evil spirit cannot resist. This scene is the revelation of Jesus as God, as Christ, as victor over the powers of evil in our world. And that's the question I would ask. How do you envision this victory to happen? This between good and evil in our world. Because Jesus intends on changing and redeeming a people Yes, in Jesus, that shame that would draw us in and overtake us, that guilt that could rise up in our lives and distort us and flood us, right? Cause us to drown. Jesus just settles it with his word. Hey, you guys are forgiven. You guys are forgiven in me. Notice the young man makes no promises to Jesus. He does nothing to merit this. 
right? He, he doesn't do anything that Jesus should do this for him. He actually, there, there's no reason Jesus should accept his love. And we read later in Scripture, this is what it says in 1 John. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. To come right to that place where this conflict between good and evil is and resolve that in himself. This is his mission. To bring life where there is death, to invade tombs, to go where we have given up on anything getting better in our life or change coming, and to show us that, that he can raise the dead. So this guy's life is like a death and resurrection story. He's in the tombs, right? And by the way, so is yours. It is all of grace because God has loved us, and he's coming to our world in person. So he's freely given to this man. And you say, well, how do we know this is true? Because Satan and all his forces threw the worst that they could at Jesus. Actually, if you read about the cross, we'll be like, oh, I think I see some of the man in the tombs. He is naked there, right? He's crying out for help, and he's not rescued. And in the middle of all of this, you know, the evil one got the whole thing started. What do you think would get a whole group of people together in Jerusalem? Crucify him to one of their Jewish brothers? How do you think all of that happened? Evil was driving all of this, and no doubt Satan thought he had won the day when Jesus died the most horrific death in shame, naked on the cross, and in disgrace. And like that man in the tomb, he went into death, who was hung on the cross, broken and naked, at the mercy of evil, and he went to this place to destroy the one who has exerted this pressure, this evil, and to bring life. And then Jesus rose from the dead, making a mockery of evil. This is how it says it elsewhere in Scripture. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So it's as if Jesus, when he's on the cross, he's like, hey, Satan, you think, is this all you got? You can kill me. But I will just raise myself up. Because there's something stronger than you. And there's something stronger than, than death. And he rose triumphantly, revealing his power, so that the apostles said, it made a joke of the power of evil. It can't run our lives anymore. Shows its impotence. And he's given to us this same power with which he was raised from the dead. And you see, this is our hope in the face of evil. Now let me tell you what happened to this man as he's liberated. First, the spirit in, in him tried to negotiate with Jesus. Jesus asked his name. It's Legion. And by the way, that part of the country wasn't inha was inhabited by Roman legions. A legion was usually around 6,000 soldiers or so. And so these demonic forces, they're many. And they begged Jesus to send them into the pigs. Why did they do that? Well, like I said, spirits need bodies to have agency. And Jesus grants their requests. The pigs run into the lake and die. By the way, Jesus doesn't do this because he hates pigs. He does this because he loves people. And the pigs were nearby. And by the way, I don't know if you know, but a lot of times there's a cost when people are liberated. Sometimes it costs a community. But once man, man's life is worth more than thousands of pigs. This guy who was written off as hopeless and practically dead, uh, he's, he's redeemed by Jesus. And what this tells me is I don't, I don't care where you are or what, where you, what you've been through or what you've done. The grace of Jesus, the healing grace of Jesus is enough for you to be set free. 
You could, I don't care how far away you feel you are from God and, and how much you think God feels about you, whether he loves you or not. He does. And Jesus is determined to raise you up and give you new life. You need to know he, he values you. This discarded man he loves. The people in the community do not have this feeling. And as I mentioned, it's going to cost the community for people to be raised up. And I always sort of think, are we willing to bear that cost as a people? To be, be people being raised up. Says so when they came to Jesus, that's the community, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Just like the disciples when they saw Jesus fill the sea. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Isn't it beautiful? Once you have Jesus, by the way, we make this very clear. Evil cannot inhabit you or control you. You belong to God. This man is more sane than the community that goes in to see what's happened or out to see what's happened. They beg Jesus to leave because he has upset the equilibrium of their community. By the way, saving people often does that. For example, raising up one member of a family can bring seismic shifts that that family may not want. They could be very upset. The people were afraid when they saw Jesus' power. Who wouldn't? Somebody has power over evil like that? He does. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with Jesus. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the ten towns, the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is beautiful. We don't get this. If you're reading the Gospel of Mark, you know, everywhere Jesus has gone, he's healed somebody. He's like, shh, shh, don't tell anybody about this. You can't tell people about me. This is the first time in which he said, look, go and tell everybody. This guy is the first evangelist, the first person to share the message. And the glory of it all is he probably doesn't have to say anything. He can just say, hey, did you hear the rumor about that guy living in the tombs? Let me show you the cut marks on me. Right? And here I am. My mind is okay. I've been set free. You see, it's not true for this man. He has sent this man as an object lesson back to his own people. Jesus wants him to tell his story. I think that's how we become ambassadors of Jesus, right? The work of Jesus can be seen in our lives, this intersection of good and evil. We're not filled with self-righteousness and pride. We're filled with gratitude to God for the freedom that he's given to us. You become an exhibit of God's grace. And yet that really is the story. At the early service, we sang the, the hymn, Amazing Grace. You may be familiar with it. I don't know if you know the story of Amazing Grace. John Newton who wrote it. It was a time during slavery in the 18th century in our world. And he became, first started as a boy on a ship but rose to be the captain of a merchant ship that took slaves back and forth from, the, from Africa to the New World and to England. And in the midst of that, he became such a violent person. I mean, really vile. So uncontrollable that at one point, they took him off the ship and they put himself, him, in prison. Because they didn't believe they could even bind him. He was that violent. He hated and he was being hated. That was his life. 
But he, he couldn't, that didn't change his heart being put in prison. Only God could do that. And like a decade later, after he himself had been a slave for a while, he's on the high seas on another one of those merchant ships, and a huge storm comes up. And it's overwhelming. And he finds himself crying out to God like that man in the tomb. And from there, God rewrote his story. The people he had trafficked before, he came to love and to see them as precious in God's sight. He published a book on the slave trade, exposing the brutality of it and repenting of what he had done. And then he led the way for slavery to be abolished in Britain. This is what he said. He said, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. He died the year that slavery was abolished in Britain. But you see, he'd been the man in the tombs that Jesus set free. He spent the last years of his life preaching about God's love. And you know what he would say? He would say, what? If God could retake me out of the tombs, you need to know that he loves you. And he will, he will bring freedom to you. And he also wrote this hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. He had been that guy. Like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It was the love of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus. You see, this is what Jesus does in our world. He takes people like you and me, and because of his love and grace, does a transformation in our hearts that we could never do for ourselves. And he makes us subjects of his kingdom. And we begin to live from his kingdom. In a way that it's sane. We're in our right minds. So the question is, what about you? What maybe what little step have you taken? Or are you being encouraged to take? What what thing is being offered to you as a bargain? Hey, if, if I'll give you this, if, if you'll give me that. And to realize as a part of this kingdom, there's a way to life in Jesus. One who can take our guilt and shame. And to calm our fears like the calming of the sea and give us life. Would you pray together with me? Really, Lord, in our modern day, in a way we, we are bankrupt. We don't even have a way to talk or think about the power of evil. Lord, we may see the system. We don't know where it came from. We don't know what to do about it. And it's true in our own lives, Father. We have the dregs, the vestiges of stuff from our past, our stories. Lord, we try to shake it off. We'd like to be able to wash ourselves free of it, but we can't. And we thank you that your plan is so much greater than ours. That Jesus came in the world so that he would take it upon himself. That it would no longer be ours. And you would give us this beautiful freedom that issues forth in a new kind of life that enables us to even love our enemies. Father, we thank you that through Jesus, you lead us to a new kind of life. And you give us a message to share, not because we're smarter, we think we're right about things, but just because it happened to us. We can have a story we can, we can tell. And so, Lord, I pray you would teach us about your mighty power, that we would see it in 
those miracles in our own lives as you freed us from guilt and shame and fear. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name.